0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. morning. All right, Kathy's going to open our class with prayer this morning.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for providing this day for us, a day which we can assemble together, worship you, study about you, learn about you. We pray, Lord, that your Spirit will fill each one of us, and you will speak to our hearts and to our minds. Be with Tim as he leads us out in discussion, and may we go away from this place today knowing you better. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.
0: And we are doing lesson uh, number nine in our quarterly, The Wonder of Jesus, and the lesson title this week is The Tenderness of His Love. And somebody in the a Sabbath lesson there, read for us the first two paragraphs.
2: Matthew 9.35 tells how Jesus went through many areas of Palestine, quote, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. In our cynical age, when people suspect that every effort to help them is tinged with some hidden agenda, the motive behind Jesus' ministry comes as a breath of fresh air. Genuine love described as, quote, compassion. He was moved for the people. His heart went out to them. We see this same general concern in Mark, verses 1-3, through where Jesus is concerned about the people fainting on their way home. They have been with me three days, he reminds his disciples, and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. This is a remarkably tender concern that says a lot about Jesus. He knew his audience, he empathized with their needs, and he felt their pain. Nor does he ask us to be exactly what he was, or to do exactly what he did. Although he had gone through 40 days of fasting... He was concerned about the health and safety of those who experienced just three days eating next to nothing, though perhaps not totally without food. The
0: lesson this week is about the compassion and the love and, 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 and tenderness of Jesus. And, and as I read this this week, dealing with what I deal with in my practice, a thought that came to my mind is I have patience that if I were to read these two paragraphs to them, they would react with anger and say... If this is true, then why didn't Jesus give us food when we were hungry? Why didn't he stop my stepfather from abusing me? Why didn't he stop my friends from getting killed in a car accident? I mean, if Jesus is loving and tender and caring, then where was he when I was hungry? What would you say to my patients who struggle with these questions?
3: Yeah. In his in his physical presence on earth, he lived a life that had direct contact and when he left he sent the Holy Spirit to take his place to minister to us in a different way than physical contact and so consequently he is not here physically next to them.
0: So that means we shouldn't expect him to help with our problems now?
3: I don't. I don't expect him to show up physically and give me food, or bail me out of tr- jail, or keep me from running into a car that I, you know, am driving in the inappropriate way. No.
0: Yeah. You, yeah. You've kind of entered a new little dynamic there. Um, bail me out of jail suggests that you've done something to get yourself there, and you said drive a car uh, when I'm driving a car inappropriately. But my patients are complaining about when they were children and some adult was abusing them or when uh, they, the person that got killed, I'm thinking a particular patient got killed when a drunk driver hit them, they weren't doing anything uh, themselves wrong um, and so I, I understand your point is quite well taken that God wouldn't stop us from abusing ourselves and our free will
3: someone else from abusing us, he does not physically interfere with what we are doing.
0: Yeah, and why would that be? How would you explain that to a person who has got anger and resentment towards God, doesn't want God in their life because they they don't see that God is tender, they don't see God is caring because of painful events. And so the challenge is, how do we help them see that God is tender and caring in spite of painful events? Yeah, Russell.
2: I was going in a different direction. Christ himself said that he gave the charge to us that we are representatives of Christ, and we are also his brothers and sisters so if we if we treat each other in a christ like manner or if we see someone who is hurting and who is who is uh, in pain, they are also.
0: No, I, think that's, I don't think that's a different direction at all. I think it's right on the deal. Exactly right. Uh, are we supposed to talk in some ethereal, in some um, uh, abstract way about a God who lives afar off? Or are we supposed to be His representatives here? As the Father sent me, so send I you. So that we then become the agencies that demonstrate this love, this care, this concern, that we reach out to help, to lift up, to heal. And in so doing, they see a love that doesn't really come just natural from human beings. Hmm. You know, I think that's right on the money. Yeah.
1: I totally agree with that. I think I have, that's my prayer all the time, Whatever the future holds, <clears throat> the Lord allows it, it has a reason for it. What can I learn through this, and what example can I be through this? And that's an honor and a privilege.
0: Amen. Amen. Another hand somewhere? Yep. Yes. The question is very uh,
4: real <clears throat> for these people. But to concentrate on the past will destroy us. There's no question. We can't avoid it. So we must look away from the past and look at the now and the future. The past is gone.
0: But how about if the future you're looking to is the future with a God who doesn't care, a God who's arbitrary, a God who's severe, a God who doesn't care when little kids get abused, a God who doesn't care when drunks drive and kill your mother, uh, and that's your future. What kind of a future is that? But that is not true. Yes, but that's their mindset. And so when you tell them to look at the future, that's the future they're looking at.
3: But God cares through us.
0: So how do we help them see see that
3: care? But what can make the difference for them?
0: Okay, all right, so back to the witness that we can show them the gracious, patience, love that we have. We don't just tell them, don't remember the past, look to the future. We, tell, we, we show them a, a grace and a love and a kindness and a, a, in, in living flesh.
3: Yes? Also, though, it, it comes down to what you believe the sovereign nature of God is. Does, does, because God is sovereign, does it mean that he's in control of everything and sent you all these bad experiences to build your character,
0: Well, that's exactly right.
3: And You know, we are agents of free will as well as others are agents of free will. And the consequences of those actions interact with those around us regardless of whether it's for the positive or for the negative. I don't think God controls us and he doesn't send us bad things so we'll get better.
0: Have any of you ever struggled with questions like this? Mm -hmm. Uh Yeah, go
1: ahead. Tim, I think it's that we have to explain to them more about what this world is about, that it's about the great controversy, Mm -hmm. and the purpose here, this is like a proving ground Mm. to all the other people and worlds, that what Satan is doing here and is allowed to do is not going to last forever and is not right, but I don't know how you can do that in one little hour session. It's going to take some time.
0: What about, uh, several have mentioned it about free will, Uh about controlling choice, why won't God take choice away from us? Why does he leave us free to make our own choices? Even when we choose, for instance, an adult chooses to abuse a little kid, why does God allow that to happen?
4: That makes makes sound like Satan is
0: right about God. Why does God allow that to happen? Well, to, what would happen if he didn't allow it to happen?
5: He'd be controlling he would take medicine. away
0: our choice. And if he takes away the choice, what does that destroy? Love. Love. Can love exist in an atmosphere without freedom? If you program people like robots and they're just programmed mechanically to carry out preordained behaviors, is there any love in that? No. No. And so God is love. And while it is painful, God really gives freedom. And so this is why, why the universe is going to be such a great place in the end, because in the end, all, only people who would be populated in the universe in the end are people who have been so won back to trust and love in God that, that they love others more than self. Greater love is no man than he gives his life for a friend. And this is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our life for each other. That everybody there would rather die than harm anybody else. That's the freedom that we'll live in, real, genuine freedom. But it will be totally safe.
2: What did your patient, whose mother was killed by a drunk driver, say when you explained this to her?
0: Uh, actually, um, most of the time, I can't say 100% of the time, but vast majority of the time, the patients come to understand that, that they would not want to be programmed like a robot. They wouldn't want their freedoms taken away. They wouldn't want to be hooked up to a machine and help somebody download programming into them to program them to just behave in certain ways. Mm. And then when they realize that for themselves, they realize, wow, that couldn't happen for others either. And so there's a real enlightenment when you think about that. How many of you would like to be programmed so you never make a mistake? But you don't have any individuality, you have no freedom, you don't have no creativity, you just do what you're programmed. Mm -hmm. Nobody would want that. Now, I know some parents would like that for their kids, (laughs) but not really.
4: (laughs) To a certain
0: age. (laughs) To (laughs) a certain age. Okay, alrighty, we're going to jump around this week, um, we've got a, a lot to jump around this week on, so let, let's jump, um, boy I'm really jumping here aren't I, yeah, jumping several pages, um, I might want to jump to Friday's lesson, just because I want to be sure we get some of the fun stuff in, let's jump to Friday's lesson and read question number three, somebody read question number three.
5: In what ways is it easy to confuse love with cheap grace? That is, what danger is there of allowing people to get away with things that they should not be doing, all because we want to reveal to them love? When is love sometimes best manifested by strict moral accountability? How can we strike the right balance? If you are going to err, which side is it best to err on?
0: ready? The fun stuff. What do you all think about, first off, this just... Before you answer the questions, what do you all just think about the questions themselves? Do you like the questions? Are they good questions? Are there some problems, actually, in the questions? Problems
1: in the questions, because allowing people to get away with things. People just don't get away with
0: things. Ah, you see the... Yes, you see the, the subtle little premise woven. I'm glad you pointed it out. Subtle little premise woven into the question. That people, if we don't hold people accountable, well, then they get away. They get away with it. See, we have to hold people accountable. They
2: don't damage their own character.
0: Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's we have to hold accountability, you see, or else people get away with it. It's woven into the question. Now, where would such a, a premise come from? Why would people have a premise like that? What would be the underlying roots that would cause a premise like that to arise in someone's mind?
2: Every sin must be punished.
0: <laughs> yeah, see, every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. You can find that quote in the book called Desire of Ages on page 762.
2: Sin doesn't really pay its own wage.
0: The Bible says sin pays its wage, the wage is death. And so the suggestion, the subtle premise is that God's law is an imposed law that God created, enacted, legislated, put in place, and therefore requires imposition of penalty. And if you let someone get away with it, you see there's no accountability. You have to hold them accountable. You have to impose penalty.
1: What's interesting is it's talking about people holding other people accountable, right. not God holding
0: them accountable. I know, because because there's a law, and this law is a natural law, not an, mm-hmm. called the law of worship. By beholding, we become... Changed. We become like what we admire, what we worship, what we what we um, esteem. We assimilate and, and follow and become like. And so when they see God handling things in this way, well, we want to be like God, don't we? So we want to practice His methods in our life. so we need to hold people accountable.
6: So what do you do in a situation where somebody just keeps on taking advantage of you, taking advantage of your love? How do you... I mean, you can't, you can't be self-destructive...
0: You know, I mean, can, Walter, can you? Ho- you can, but I mean, it's, I
6: don't know. Can you
0: hold that question for one second? Okay, because we want to clarify the issue, and then that question is perfect question to answer. Okay, well, let's clarify first what the foundation is, and see what the issue is. Is God's law an imposed law? No. Or is God's law a natural law? Natural. What happens, for instance, um, if if you tell your children, you know, don't play on the roof of the barn. Don't play on the roof of the barn. And they play on the roof of the barn and they fall off and break their leg. Are you imposing a punishment upon them? Yeah, I mean, isn't there a certain consequence that comes from, from doing things, uh, from violating certain principles like the law of gravity?
1: Some
6: parents get out the belt after that.
0: Yes, they do, don't they? Some parents do, don't they? And we ought to think about that. Remember what God they're trying to be like. Um, Now, imagine, let me just, imagine this with me. This is an imaginary scenario, that you today molest a child, a five-year-old child, sexually. And no one ever finds out, and you are never caught. How well will you sleep tonight?
5: depends on how demented your mind is, to
0: be honest. I'm asking each of you, how well would you sleep tonight? Oh, terrible. And if you could sleep well after doing such a thing, how damaged a person must you be? Do you understand? When we do evil to other people, it damages us. It warps the character. Now, I have patients who are molested as kids, and they always have a lot of anger and resentment towards the people who molested them. And at some point for their healing, as you know, they have to work through that, and they have to, in their heart, forgive the person who did this. And we come to that point of the therapy, Um, and I bring this up there's always the resistance no way they never got caught they never went to jail no one's ever held them accountable we've got to hold them accountable can't let them go I won't forgive because no one will hold them accountable to get away with it and I ask him, well if God took you to heaven today right now at this moment and give you one choice here's your choice you can come back to earth exactly as you are your life is exactly as it's been no changes or you get the choice to trade lives with the person who abused you and you get to come back and live their life going around abusing kids but no one ever abuses you Whose life do you choose? What do you think they choose? Their life. 100% of them choose their own. And I say, why? Oh, I couldn't live with myself if I did that. And all of a sudden the light goes on and they see, wow, when, when we are done wrong by people, we can have our bodies hurt, we can have our finances hurt, we can have our, our emotions hurt, we can have our psychology hurt, but our consciences remain clear, our souls remain unsullied. When we do evil to other people, we damage the most precious things that we have. The godlike image within gets damaged, gets sullied, the conscience gets seared. And that's much more precious than anything else. And so people never get away with it. And so this premise in the question, the premise in the question, you know, do we hold people accountable or if they get away with it, is, is a false premise. This is why sin. Uh, leads to destruction. And I'll read you a quote, quote from First Selective Messages, 235, written, I think, in the 1890s, sent to the um, header to the Review and Herald, who was Uriah Smith, who didn't like it, so he filed it, where it remained in the Review and Herald files instead of publishing it in the Review and Herald, until the 1950s, where it was discovered and put in the Selected Messages, uh, page 235. Now, you can decide whether you agree or disagree. We shouldn't believe it just because we read it. You should think it through and see if this makes sense and supported by Scripture. It so says, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you, or do you like the other view? Oh, no, no, no. If you sin, God gets mad and he has to lash out against you and punish you. Which makes more sense to you? Yeah, I mean, this is what it's all about. So when we understand this, then no one ever gets away with it. So back to your question then. Now, take your question for us.
6: What do you do if somebody just keeps on taking advantage of you?
0: Okay. Give us an, can you want to give us a specific example? A,
6: I don't have one, but...
0: Okay. Just... How about a child who's an adult child who's got an alcohol and drug problem and keeps stealing from mom and dad? keeps calling up, can't pay my rent this week because i burned it all up on drugs. Will you pay my rent for me? Month after month after month. Uh, Is that an example?
1: Okay.
0: Well, what does love do? What is love interested in? What is the ultimate interest of a parent's heart for that child? That their rent get paid or their soul get saved? Well, will their soul get saved as long as they continue to live in the lifestyle they're living? Or are they destroying themselves? See, it's not about protecting self. You, your question was about, well, how do we protect self if people are trying to take advantage? But the real question is, how do I act in love to redeem this person? How do I benefit them? And if they're involved in acts of sin, acts of exploitation of other people, then they're actually destroying their own soul and when you think about, okay, because I love them, I have to stand up and say no. I have to set boundaries. I can't continue to collude with this. I can't continue to give you resources to destroy yourself with. I love you too much. Yeah?
1: Yeah. That would be also like withdrawing away from people who are bad influences. You know, if they're, if they're in some way, you feel, feel <clears throat> abusing you, then you need to take yourself and remove yourself out of the situation and say, you know, I don't want to see you again or I don't want...
0: And sometimes we have family members like that. But we is do.
5: that more in self-interest? Because couldn't you, I mean, if you're in a position and you're surrounded by people, and you, can you not do something to maybe help?
0: Remember the story of the scorpion and the frog? The scorpion goes to the frog and says, um, will you give me right across the lake? The frog says, no way, if i let you in my back, you'll sting me and I'll die. The scorpion says, no, I wouldn't do that. If I sting you, we'll both drown, we'll both die. The frog says, well, okay, hop on. Halfway across the lake, the scorpion stings the frog. As a poison's working its way through the frog, the frog's about to drown. He says, why'd you do that? Now we're both going to drown. Scorpion said, it's my nature. It's my nature. You see, one of the things people fail to ask is, what is the nature of the people you're dealing with? And there are some people out there whose natures are so self-centered, so exploitive, so evil, that all they want to do is promote self, advance self, exalt self. It doesn't matter who they step on to get there. And sadly, some of us have family members like this. I hate to have to say it. Sometimes we do. And so if you have a scorpion in the family, you can't kill, your, can't kill the scorpion. And so let's say you had one of these black African scorpions. It's like a really big, ugly thing. And uh, you, you have to keep it alive in your home. What would you do with it?
4: <laughs>
0: Come on, that's a serious question. What would you do? In aquarium. You'd, put it in, you'd put it in a terrarium, right? That's what you do, you put it in a terrarium, okay? And what's a ter- terrarium provide? It provides firm, impenetrable boundaries that are healthy, that keep a separation where it can't take advantage of you anymore. So sometimes we have family members we have to set boundaries with. That we don't open ourselves up to exploitation doesn't mean we don't love them, doesn't mean we don't care, but we recognize that they are, they are unhealthy and that they tend to exploit and take advantage and we just don't open the avenues for them to exploit and take advantage. Yes? Yes.
4: Right. Long ago, when I was at the Kennedy Center, I, I saw this uh, ad that seems pretty, pretty heathen at its base, but I think it does have sort of a, a Christian application. It says, "The best revenge is good living." That's
0: a great That's really good. Paul said that.
4: Yeah, and then it it, it sort of helps me justify being good or giving something to somebody who is um, not living the way I I think they should. In other words, it's a a form of sanction in a way. But on the other hand, if you give somebody something that you know they're going to, to abuse or misuse, the fact of the matter is that in this life, this is all they will ever know.
0: Right. That's right.
3: It's, it's easier to go to the extremes of your decision making than it is to the middle. So give us
0: a middle, a middle dilemma.
3: The, um, I think God's and our desire would be that we, we would all be mature, responsible individuals. And when we have family members who um, don't make responsible financial choices do not make responsible choices with their showing up on a dependable basis to their job. And they lose their job, etc. And then they have less resources than they need, or whatever. I'm a little disturbed by the fact that not everyone is given equal advantages in their personality. We are all born handicapped in, in various degrees. God, Christ even, because of?
0: Why? You, you've just made an observation. What's the implication?
3: I, I think it's from our genetic um, degeneration of, of sin.
0: Okay, so it's not God's role in making some better than others. No, no, no. no.
3: Okay. And, and so, how do we, we relate? I mean, even Christ said, the poor will be with you always. Well, some of the poor, I was just in San Diego yesterday, and on the way to the airport, I passed multiple clumps of individuals who held up homeless signs, wanting me to help in any way that I could. And I don't know that helping them would have been a benefit. Mm -hmm. And yet, some of them, I think, are truly hungry, are truly miserable, and in what way can you be a positive influence on those individuals?
0: Any thoughts about that? Yes.
4: I don't think you have to give them money. Give them something. Give them food. Find a different alternative to give them Something that they need without giving them the money, because if you give money to an alcoholic, you
0: buy alcohol. But how many of those people are out there with signs, because they want help, or signs because they want to induce guilt in you? Guilt and get money.
5: But then, is it um, our position to judge that?
0: No, no. I'm seriously. Why are they out there? Because they because they really want to improve their life station. They're actually looking for a job. They're actually looking for a better station that they currently have. Or they're looking to induce guilt in other people to take advantage and exploit, so they can stay exactly where they are. I don't
1: think everybody's
3: doing that. Well, I think I do it's, what works. It's hard to sort.
0: Um, how do we correct others? What's the balance? Let's talk about correcting others. That was the question we started with. Well, I'll read you a quote, a quote out of First Timothy's one sixty-six, and see if you, as a church board member, as a church uh, somebody in church, you've you, you got somebody that, that's that's you know doing something that you know is wrong, and you you feel the burden to correct them. See if this applies to you. It says I have a, I have seen the great sacrifice which Jesus made to redeem man. He did not consider his own life too dear to sacrifice. He said, "Love one another as I have loved you." Do you feel, when a brother or sister errs? that you could give your life to save them. If you feel this way, you can approach him and affect his heart. You are just the one to visit that person. But it is lamentable fact that many who profess to be brethren are not willing to sacrifice any of their opinions or their judgments to save a brother. There is but little love for one another The selfish spirit is manifested. I mean, when you've gone to correct people, have you had in your heart that you love that other person so much that you could give your life for them? And if you don't love them that much, then you need to not be the one to correct them. Don't you notice that's how our church always works? I actually haven't noticed that. Um, I've had people correct me sometimes. I remember once, uh, I was teaching a, a class, and, and after the class, uh, one of the leaders of the of the local church uh, uh, came to me and told me that I, I had a spirit of Satan and I wasn't welcome there anymore and I needed to leave. Yeah. That yeah, was sad. Um, and then, and then there's a balance. This is out of Sketches of the Life of Paul. To hate and reprove sin at the same time manifest pity and tenderness for the sinner is a difficult attainment. The more earnest our own efforts to attain holiness of heart and life, the more acute will our perception of sin, be our perception of sin. And the more decided our disapproval of any deviation from right... We must guard against undue severity toward the wrongdoer, but while we should seek to encourage him in every effort to correct his errors, we must be careful not to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. While there is need of Christ-like patience and love toward the erring, there is constant danger of manifesting so great tolerance for his error that he will consider himself undeserving of reproof and will reject it as uncalled for and unjust. Now, how do you, how, give me an example of how you throw that balance out there. How do we see somebody who's involved in, in some self-destructive, sinful aspect, they're, they're, they're not walking with the Lord, and, and you want to reach out to that person, and you want to reprove sin, but you want to do it in a way that they know you love them. What's the balance? How can you hate the sin and love the sinner? What would you do? Well, I think family-wise, I don't
1: know about
5: anybody in the church, but you definitely do in your family.
0: I was about to say, how about a parent who has a child who's got problems with drug addiction? Would that parent hate... Drug addiction and all the suffering that comes from drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Would the parent hate the child? Mm-hmm. No, you see, I mean, it becomes very clear when you look at it that way, doesn't it? You hate what drug addiction is doing to your child. Why, and why does the parent hate the drug addiction? Because it's destroying the child. Because it's destroying the one they love. This is why God hates sin. Mm-hmm. See, a lot of people have the idea God hates sin because it breaks his rules and it shows well, indifference to him and it offends his sensibilities and he gets mad because he doesn't do what he says. No. All sin destroys his children, the one he loves. That's why he hates it. is why it's so awful. Or a parent.
1: Isn't that what intervention is about? The people who really care and love this person in their lives come together to tell them <coughs> how, they, how much they care about them and how their behavior is affecting not only their lives but the lives of the people who care about them and try to encourage them to get... get, get you know, recognize how far they've gone and what they need
0: to be that. That's what it's designed to do, you bet. Absolutely. Bring it to repentance. Ashley. This
5: may be slightly sort of a subject, but you um you pray. What should your prayer be in that situation? Should it be to. Prepare you or help you relate to them better, or should it be prayer for them? You know, because you can pray for them all you want. I think we kind of almost touched on this last Sabbath, but like you, I mean, I know I've, I have friends that I've prayed for for years. You know, because they're doing things. You know, like in the lifestyle that, but God is not just going to change them just because I'm. You know, they have to want it for themselves. And I mean, like I said, it's probably completely off subject.
0: No, no, that's a great question. Any, any thoughts from the class you'd like to share with Ashley on that question? Yes.
5: I agree with her because this is struggle I've always had. I've emailed you about this before. Um, where when we pray for others, even praying for others, God, please be with them. In a way, it's helping us to be less self-focused and focusing on others. But I agree with her that we need to pray for what can we do to help them.
0: So prayer number one does have an impact on the person praying, doesn't it? Oh
5: yeah. Not that God will break their freedoms to change their lives radically.
0: I think that's primary.
2: That's the primary. Primarily with prayer of God. Well
0: it brings us into communion with God so it ha-
2: trying to get God to to love this other person more or to to want their well being. He already does.
0: Yes. How about praying that God will oh, I don't know, throw uh the proper um, influences into their life that could stimulate them, open their eyes, bring certain factors to bear, knowing their psychology, knowing what values they have, knowing what things that you don't know about them. Could you pray that God could bring some aspect in their life that could have the light go on in their head? But
2: doesn't he already want to do that? I mean, does he need our request in order for him to be able to to intervene?
0: Sure he he does. Yes, he does. Why? Because he doesn't violate their free will. If they're saying, "Look, I don't want you in my life," is God going to continue to harass them if he says, "Get out"? But
1: that's what intercessory prayer is all about,
0: too. Right. And so, he, and so, when we ask that God do it, God, on our behalf, will go and bring influences into their life that maybe He wouldn't do because they said, "I don't want your influence in my life." It's never going to violate free will, but bring, bring ideas, concepts, experiences that are designed to stimulate and open the mind to things, maybe he will do that in ways that he might not otherwise do because he's respecting the will of the person. Say, I don't want
2: your influence in my life. Doesn't
6: he ask us to be the person that influences them? Of course, and that's
0: part of it too. If
2: the person still doesn't want that influence in life, what difference is it going to make when I ask him to? Well,
1: let's try another approach then. You pray that the Lord will make them so miserable (laughs) in their sin that they themselves realize they have to
0: have a way out. They can no longer continue because they're miserable, physically, emotionally, whatever. They're so miserable in that lifestyle that they request a way out, and that's when they intercede. Let's let's take a Bible. Let's let's take a Bible example. Okay, let's clear it up. Bible example. Okay, Daniel is praying in the book of Daniel for the release of the children of Israel. Remember? Okay, and an angel comes after about a week. And says, as soon as you began to pray, I was dispatched to the king of Persia. But the prince of Persia opposed me. And it wasn't until Michael came that we succeeded and overcame and the king of Persia made the decision. Now notice, there's the king of Persia, there's the prince of Persia. The king of Persia is the human being in rulership of the land. The prince of Persia, who is the prince of Persia that's opposing, is opposing Gabriel? Probably not. Satan is called the prince of the air or the prince of this earth. This is not the prince of the whole earth. This is the prince of Persia. So this is probably one of Satan's generals, if you will one of Satan's administrators of that region, in other words a demonic spirit a demonic angel, fallen being who works for Satan, who was working against Gabriel, and how was he working against Gabriel? Was he in physical fighting with Gabriel, like tied ropes around Gabriel's legs and wouldn't let Gabriel get near the the king Or, or was it that they were both working to try and shed their influence in the king's mind? Okay, And the king was under the influence of the prince of Persia and the and Gabriel was trying to counter that influence, not to control the will, but to free the king of Persia's will so that he could make an independent choice because he was so dominated by demonic influence in his thinking and motives and attitudes and beliefs. Okay. And so it wasn't until Michael came that, there, that he could free the mind of the king of Persia. And so those prayers of Daniel facilitated that process in happening.
2: But is that the only thing that did it? Or... Was it God's plan all along that this this struggle happened? God, of course, knew that this struggle would happen in the the mind of... It
0: was God's plan all along, but but the way God's universe works, the way... It
2: only happened because Daniel prayed.
0: Sovereignty. The way God's universe works and the way the free will of this planet works and God's sovereignty is God does not impose his will on anyone. He does not force his way. He leaves his creatures free. And so because Daniel one of his free creatures requested, God came to fulfill Daniel's request. Without those requests, God would have said the other
6: creatures free will. Pardon? But that's not the other beings
0: free will. Which which other being? Which other being?
5: Ones that attacked.
0: Give me one other being. The ones that they came the to change the The king of Persia was not forced by God. He was only freed by God. That's right. There's a difference. That's
2: right. No, I'm not, I don't, I'm not insinuating that he was forced by God. But he was
0: freed. His mind was freed by God, by Daniel's request. He didn't request it himself. If he would have requested it himself, God would have been glad to do it. But we need to move on, uh, because there's some stuff in Monday's lesson. Read the first paragraph. Go ahead.
4: You know, in time past, we were all told to pray for a certain thing throughout the churches of California. Am I saying then that we can change God's mind...
0: Of course we can change God's mind. There's Bible evidence for that. The children of Israel, God was feeding them manna. He wanted them to eat only manna. They begged and begged for meat. Who brought them the quail? God brought them the quail. He didn't want them to have quail. They changed his mind. God wanted to be their king. He didn't want them to have kings. He warned them, no kings, no kings, no kings. They begged for kings. Who chose their first two kings? God chose their first two kings. He changed his mind. Yeah, we can beg God so much that He will actually use His power to help us do things He doesn't want us to do. Well, then He's not omnipotent. Of course He's omnipotent. It's not about knowing. He knew what was going to happen. That's why He warned them. Did He warn them and tell them, look, if you have kings, all this bad stuff's going to happen to you. I'm warning you, don't do it. Don't do it. Well, yeah, we want them anyway. We don't care what you say. Okay, well then, here, Saul will be your first one. David will be your second one.
3: He's omnipotent, but he limits his power in relationship to the freedom of his beings.
0: Yes. He doesn't control because love can't exist in an atmosphere without freedom. If God were to... I mean, God could create a universe where everything was just a computer program. I mean, he just controls it all. But in such a universe, there's no love. All right, Monday's lesson. Okay, read first paragraph, Monday's lesson.
3: Children have borne the brunt of suffering over the centuries... Helpless and dependent, they often have been caught in the crossfires of wars and conflicts, public riots and family feuds. It was children, infant males in particular, who bore the brunt of the first hideous solution of the Jewish problem under the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. Exodus 1, 15 and 16. And it was infant males who again were decimated in Herod's slaughter of the innocents in Matthew 2.16 leading Matthew to recall another time of indiscriminate slaughter of children at the start of the Babylonian captivity, found in Jeremiah 31.15. Learning about Herod's slaughter, perhaps on his mother's knees, how keenly Jesus must have remembered it, knowing that these innocent little ones had died, in a sense, because of him. He had come to die for them, but, because, but before he was old enough, even to conceive of his mission, they had died because of him.
0: Okay, y'all, what do you think about the sentiment that, at the end of this paragraph, that the children, these little babies, died because of Jesus? That's what's expressed in the lesson, yes or no? Yes,
2: it is expressed.
0: Expressed in the lesson. What do you all think about that conclusion?
2: It's absurd.
0: I'm glad some other people felt that way. Do you think that? See, this is the type of twisted thinking that many of my patients end up in. And that's why they have so many problems. They take a sense of responsibility and burden of guilt onto themselves for something that is not theirs. Did Jesus or God use any of their power to kill these babies? No. no. Did Jesus or God instruct anybody to kill these babies? No. Would Jesus and God in any way involved in the death of these babies? No. No. Okay? So, in fact, if Jesus and God would have taken this attitude in heaven, oh my... If I go to earth as a human baby, then many babies will die. I just couldn't live with that, so I think I'll stay here in heaven. Then what would have happened? <clears throat>
2: <coughs> all, all Satan would have won.
0: They think of this logic. And this is what happens in many of my patients. They think this way. They see that when they're taking a healthy course and they're taking a healthy course in a world in which they're relating to people who are living in unhealthy lifestyles, and those other people, in response to their healthy decision, makes unhealthy choices, they feel guilty for the consequence of another person's choice. For instance, a man and a woman are dating. The man concludes after a period of time this is not the right person for him to be with, so he wants to terminate the relationship. He expresses that to her, and she threatens that if you break up with me, I'll kill myself. And he says, oh, I couldn't live with that. I would feel guilty. It would be my fault if she killed herself. And so he stays with her. Good choice bad choice? Bad choice, bad choice? Yeah, Is it? and if he ends the relationship and she goes and kills herself, is it his fault? No. No, this is the same logic going on here, isn't it? And I can tell you, so many people get trapped in this kind of stuff, and they refuse to do that which is healthy, that which is reasonable, that which is appropriate for their life, for their conduct, for for God's will in their life, because they're aware that some other person who's not living a healthy life might react in unhealthy ways to the healthy choice that they make. And so each one of us have to remember our responsibilities. Our responsibility for each of us is in governance of ourselves, to do what's healthy, what's right, what's reasonable, what's Christ-like in the decisions we make, even if others around us choose to act differently. Thoughts about that? Amen. Yes?
4: This this logic would also apply to all the martyrs that because they believed in Jesus were slaughtered later on as far as I'm concerned I mean the children didn't have any choice martyrs perhaps did because they had chosen to believe in Jesus but the fact of the matter is that these children were totally collateral damage just like in any type of war there's going to be collateral damage you cannot avoid killing civilians with the uh, combatants out there and you know it's just like those those people that were killed in any of the uh, big events of whether like a catastrophic or whatever of, of uh, the Old Testament, those were people, as you have stated, that were simply put away in storage, so to speak. I mean, they were they were put in a safe place. You know, and they can be raised when the uh, resurrection comes back. Paul? Oh. What about the firstborn of Pharaoh and, and all the children of the Egyptians?
0: And what about those?
4: Well, they were all killed if they weren't under the blood.
0: (laughs) Yeah, And your question is?
4: How would that relate to this?
0: Well, I think they're two different stories, so I don't see a direct relationship. So how are you seeing a connection?
4: Who did that?
0: God did that. Okay. Yeah. (coughs) And what was the reason God did it? What was the context? What was going on?
6: He wanted the Egyptians to admit that he was the true God, instead of placing their own gods above him.
0: Where did the plague start? Which was the first? Water to blood. And who did they and, and what was that plague designed to do? Attack one of their gods. Which god? God know. of the Nile. God, the Nile. The god of the Nile. Showing the God of the Nile is impotent. And every one of the god every one of the plagues was an attack on one of their gods. And they went up the, the escalation of the of the gods. And the last god I think was, was Horus, which was the god that was like a dog face and a human body. That guy you see in that picture. And that was the god that guarded the, the underworld, the guard, god of the dead. That was the God that, in their beliefs, had the power of life and death. And so, God took them, step by step, to show them, in every opportunity, Pharaoh repented, and then hardened his heart. Truth convicted him, then hardened his heart. Truth convicted him, and hardened his heart. And God was gently trying to help open their eyes to, look, none of your gods have any power over anything you think they have power over. I'm the one who has power over it all. And then finally, ultimately, finally, life and death itself, They say, we're holding out. Well, Horus, at least, you know, we may not have Nile and flies and and boils and all this other stuff, but hey, you know, where it really counts life and death, our God's still number one. No. Firstborn of Egypt. Horus couldn't do anything. Powerless. Showing the utter impotence. God is the, the true God. So this is an attack on their gods to free their minds to bring them back to a relationship with the true God. Why? Because God prefers to use this method? But think, no, think about where people are. In ancient times, what was it in their minds that determined whose God was the right God? Power. Power. Mm -hmm. So if God would have approached the ancients in Old Testament times with gentleness and kindness and love and mercy, would they have said, yes, this is a God we can respect and admire, we want to be like that? No. He he approached them where they were with the dimmest light possible. If this is the only thing you respond to, okay, I'm also powerful, yeah. I mean that's not the the, the, the most awesome thing about me. The most awesome thing is is I'm loving, I'm love, and I'm kind, and I'm gracious, and I'm self sacrificing. But if you guys don't value that, it's also true that I am the most powerful. And so let's start there. I've got power. Oh, he's got power. Wow, okay. Then then let's let we can we can respect a God like that. And then slowly, over time, they'll come to realize that, yeah, he's got the power. But what kind of being is he who has all this power? So he starts with the dimmest little light that they could possibly comprehend. Power. And this way it says, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Because power alone can't heal and save us. Ashley.
5: So could you say then that that God took those lives to teach a lesson? Absolutely. Because then there's an argument, you know, like when a loved one dies here and, you know, God took them. And that?
0: In that particular case, he did. Okay. And the flood, and the 185,000 Assyrians, and Kuradethan and Byram, and Uzzah, and we could go on a whole long list. But, where did all of those people end up? We don't Asleep. know. Asleep. Asleep. And every one of them is coming up out of the grave, there's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation, and they come up out of the grave with the exact same current of thought that so they went into the grave.
4: But isn't the point that there we do not know there may be many uh, firstborn who <laughs> were just as in the flood that will come up in the first resurrection?
0: We have no idea. We it's not our position to judge. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. Okay, it says in the last paragraph of Monday's lesson, it talks about the children who had sat in Jesus' lap and had Jesus' hands put on their head, and Jesus personally blessed them and prayed for them. If you were one of those children who had sat in Jesus' lap and had his hands on your head, and he blessed you as a child, what difference would that make for your life today? Would it? Would it make a difference in your life today? You
3: set up a shrine and everyone could worship you. <laughs>
0: Okay, so you'd be a, a, a demigod. That's right. uh, sadly to say, that might happen. Sad, sad to say. If it did, then his blessing failed in your life if you did that, right? Yeah.
2: Those children all died.
0: Yeah, they all died. But what difference would it make in, not their children, I'm talking you, your personal life, how you live your life today, would it make a difference in the way you live if you had sat in his lap and, and he did that for you? It. Would it be a powerful experience for you? I'm not talking as a two-month-old. I'm talking as a ten-year-old.
5: But I don't think it would be safe to say that you, would live per- like, that you would be able to live a perfect life.
0: I didn't say perfect. Oh, no, would it make a difference?
5: I just, no. Yeah, some people would think. Well.
6: It might be too much to handle. You might go the other way. Really? You might feel so much responsibility yeah. that you can't be correct or that you can't be perfect that you say, well, forget it all. I'm just going to go the way of the world.
0: Interesting. Wow. Interesting. That the pressure to perform would, would be a, so, so some would feel a pressure to perform. Is that, was that what we need to do when we come into a relation with God, that the closer we come, we have more pressure to, to be better and work harder?
2: No, I think the love would stay with you. I don't think you forget the love of a mother, you No, know, ever. Lots and of children forget the love of yeah. their mother.
1: I don't know that they forget it, but I don't think it always determines the outcome.
0: Okay. All right. All righty. Jesus warned... Talking about children, in, Matthew, in Mark 9:42, if anyone causes one of those little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown in the sea and a large millstone tied around his neck. This is a pretty harsh and stern warning, isn't it? Why do you think such a harsh, stern warning? Well, let me just explore with you a little neurobiology of brain development, if I can. Um, and what happens when little kids are abused and why it's so harmful. When a child is born into the world, the the, the child has hundreds of millions of brain cells, neurons, more at birth than they do by the time they're 8 to 10 years of age. The first 8 to 10 years of life, the brain is busy killing off neurons by the hundreds of millions. And at first, it doesn't sound too good uh, unless you conceptualize it as Michelangelo's block of marble when Michelangelo gets it, and when Michelangelo's block of marble when Michelangelo is done with it. When he's done with it, he has less marble but he now has a masterpiece. The brain comes into the world prepared to be acted upon by education, experience, environment. Neurons and neural circuitry which are being utilized are kept, strengthened, expanded. Neurons which are not being used are deleted. Thus, we've all heard stories of kids who were locked in uh, cages and no one ever spoke any language to them until they were uh, eight to ten years of age, and and they could never learn language right now because the neurons in the temporal lobe of the brain were deleted because the brain was not using them. Now, this is not just true for uh, neurons of language. This is true for the entire brain. And so uh, early childhood development is very critical. Now, uh, in our brain, we have different neural circuits. We have the, the deep limbic system circuits, which where we get our passions, our, our drive, our aggression, our, our powerful emotions. And so if you're on the uh, interstate and somebody cuts you off and you get that irritable, aggressive emotion, well, that's coming out of your limbic system. But then, if you go, wait a minute. You know, I, I'm I'm a Christian. I, I don't want to retaliate against people. I want to be kind and gracious. And and so you restrain yourself from any reaction to that. That is the prefrontal cortex up here behind your forehead, where you're thinking and reasoning. Now, I want you to imagine right now, um, if you believed that at any moment somebody could break into this room and severely beat you. Or rape you. You think that actually could happen. You, you're living under the, uh, the, the fear that that could actually happen. And with that mindset, you had to take your final board examinations or final examinations for school. Do you think your board scores and your examinations could be affected? Okay, and you have a developed prefrontal cortex. So think of a child growing up in a home in which at any moment mommy or daddy could come in and beat them, or at any moment daddy could come in and molest them, they live in an environment with this constant uncertainty, this constant fear, this constant anxiety. The limbic system circuitry with all this fear, all this anxiety, is firing, firing, firing constantly. Do you think it could impair prefrontal cortex development? It does. So the kids come into the world with software problems. In other words, they learn bad things about how relationships are supposed to work. They come into the world in which they don't feel valued, they don't feel trusted, they don't feel that people care about them, they feel emptiness, they don't trust others because the people that they're supposed to trust take advantage and hurt of them. But additionally, they actually come into adulthood with hardwiring changes in the brain where the areas of the brain that cite fear, that cite anxiety, that warn danger, 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 are much, much more developed and the areas of the brain that process this information, the areas of the brain that help us think clearly, are underdeveloped. And so people are uh, moody, irritable, uh, impulsive, uh, anxious, nervous, uh, uh, have unhealthy relationships of all kinds, uh, have a difficult time trusting others, and certainly have a difficult time trusting God, lots of anger issues, uh, all stemmed from what's happening in childhood. Now, is it the child's fault that all this has happened to them? No. Do you think that this child is irredeemable? They're not. I have many patients like this, and and they can be healed. But has this put a whole lot of extra barriers and and problems in their way towards the healing process? Yeah. And so God warns, and Christ warns about this. These little kids, uh, we we do this to them. We cause all types of damage that needs, needs time and patience to heal. Questions about any of that? Yeah.
3: Does that also happen in adults, in
0: post-traumatic stress uh, it, it can, but it's not as severe because adult brain has already developed. So you've got a good prefrontal cortex. In a, post, in a post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome as an adult, you do get uh, upregulation of the limbic system circuitry and amygdala. And, you do, uh, and to the degree that you're not able to process that, and, and why people have the, the flashbacks and the intrusive thoughts and all this stuff, ultimately it's because they're not able to, in some way, put these traumatic events into an internalization in which they can look back on and have have peace with. They're wanting to undo it. They don't want to accept it. This can't have really happened. I can't believe this. And they're wanting in some way to, to erase from their mind the traumatic event. And so it keeps coming up over and over again because it needs to be processed and, and put into a life history that we can look back on and say, you know what, I can live with that. And it also has to not just do the events, but it has a change also in the oftentimes of a traumatic event in the way we receive, perceive self in the world. After a traumatic event, people will often perceive themselves as more vulnerable. Less safe, this world is less safe, less insecure, uh, more abandoned, more lonely. They'll have a lot of changes in their own sense of self that are, are, are wrought up because of the traumatic event that has to be worked through. Okay, in in closing, we're about out of time. Let's jump back now to Sunday's lesson. We don't have time to read everything I wanted to read, but it's talking about how Jesus treated other people. And it's talking about uh, the story of Simon's Feast. And Simon, and and I'm going to just tell you some of the the history here that some Christian authors suggest is going on to try and fill in the details. We're going to look at three people and how Jesus treated them. Uh, And that is Mary. Uh, Some people suggest that the woman who was caught in adultery, thrown down at Jesus' feet, is Mary which is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who is the one who anointed Jesus' feet at Simon's uh, feast and is the niece of Simon. Further suggested that Simon is the one who led Mary into sexual sin. In other words, Simon took his niece and sexually exploited her when she was a young person, taking advantage of her, and this caused her to end up in the life of prostitution. And these are the behind the scene dynamics that people read into the, to the various accounts. You now, with those things in mind, if, uh, what, during the feast, here comes Mary, who has been rescued by Jesus, forgiven. Uh, her stature as an individual has been restored. Her dignity, he respects her as a person. She, she feels this, this acceptance and love from, from the Messiah. Her dignity is restored. So she comes in thanks and offers this, uh, this very expensive perfume and pours on him. And Simon begins thinking, if Jesus was really a prophet... Now, remember, Simon had been cured from leprosy. This is a living death for people in those days. He'd been cured from leprosy by Christ. And now, at this feast, he's giving Christ as a payback. Okay, you cured me from leprosy. Okay, I'll pay your, your medical fee, and I'll give you a big feast, and that'll be your payment. I know we don't have insurance and third-party payers here, so I'll have to take it on myself and, and pay this big fee for the leprosy healing you he gave me. And so he has this feast, as payment. This is what Simon's doing. And at this feast, Mary comes and anoints his feet. And Simon begins to think. If he were really a prophet, if he were really from God, he wouldn't let such a disgusting and vile and, 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 and loose woman touch him. He doesn't really know about her. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't. And he's hardening his heart against Christ. And Simon is the one who led her into sin. Now I want you to imagine there's an elder at the church who molested his niece when she was a little girl. And that the girl grew up to have sexual problems and acting out in various ways with people in the community. And the local pastor goes out and ministers to her and brings her to conversion and brings her to baptism. And she's had a change of heart and she's, she's starting to live a new life. And, 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 and this elder hardens his heart against the, the pastor, telling that he's not really working for God anymore, and is against the woman and says she shouldn't be in the church. And you happen to know he's the one that molested her and brought her in and brought her into this whole lifestyle. What would you do with that information? How would you handle it? You see, this is the dynamic here. Simon is angry at Jesus for forgiving this woman and bringing her out of a life of sin, thinks that Jesus isn't really a prophet, and Simon is condemning the one that he molested to get her into this in the first place. Jesus knew it. How did Jesus treat Simon? With kindness. He protected his reputation. This is a Pharisee, he's a leader. Uh, of the people and he told a parable to Simon there were two debtors one owed 50 one owed 500 and the man forgave them both who loves more the one who's forgiven more you have said rightly and Simon got it and realized that Jesus saw through him and knew what the deal was that he was actually more wicked in heart than Mary and Simon was converted and became a follower of Jesus Christ you see, this is how Christ works. How would we as humans do it? Oh, man, we'd call CNN, wouldn't we?
1: <laughs>
0: we'd get that on the nightly news. We'd expose him. Yes. And then, again, how he treated Mary. When he was a woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Do you see that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, do you recognize that as the Father speaking? When we're caught in sin, we've done things, you never have to worry about the Father's attitude. His attitude is, neither do I condemn you. Because of what we talked about earlier. He only wants to heal us. A physician who has a patient who is noncompliant, the physician doesn't need to condemn the patient. The physician still wants to heal the patient. And so when the patient goes back, I'm sorry, I haven't done what you told me to do, I was afraid. I actually have patients that come back to me who have not been compliant, and some of them are afraid to come back to me. I'm afraid, I, was, I thought you'd be mad at me. I'm not mad at you. But look what's happened to you. <laughs> look at where you are. I said, you know, apologize to yourself. Don't apologize to me. I said, there's a mirror here. Stand up and tell yourself you're sorry for what you've done to yourself the last six months. Okay, don't, don't apologize to me. <laughs> okay? And this is the point. God doesn't have to condemn. If we don't accept his healing, our situation is terminal. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us with an infinite love. And that You have sent Your Son to bring us this truth, to heal us, to redeem us, that You do not stand toward us as our enemy to condemn, but as our great physician to heal and restore. May we come to really know that, more than just in our heads, but in our hearts, that we can experience this healing, this regeneration, that we can go out ministering this love, this truth, that can free others who are, who are caught in fear and insecurity and, and in the practices of self-destructive behaviors. Amen. We pray in Your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.